episode 272, COVID-19, why this pandemic is a game changer for PCPs and the employers and plans who pay them. Today, I speak with Guy Culpepper, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. A lot of people are wondering why independent PCPs are furloughing nurses and talking about shuttering their practices in the middle of a pandemic. Conventional wisdom would assume that PCPs would be just fine if they stand up telehealth and can take some sort of majority of their patient visits virtually. After all, it would make a lot of sense that a lot of patients are calling their doctor right now. Today, I interview Guy Culpepper, MD. Dr. Culpepper sets us straight about what is actually going on day to day for PCPs right now. He also suggests that right now, this pandemic is a flashpoint. It's a game changer. It's the trigger for an abrupt and transformational change in the business of providing patients with primary care. Just a couple of vocab words to keep us straight here. DPC stands for direct primary care. This is when a doctor bills a patient directly, no insurance in the picture. So the doctor sends a bill for, say, 70 bucks a month to the patient, and the doctor will then take care of that patient no matter how many questions they ask or texts they send or office visits they require or don't require. Direct-to-employer means that the doctor contracts directly with an employer, usually a self-insured employer, again, without insurance. So the employer pays the doctor usually some capitated lump sum per month or per year for primary care. Goodbye, fee-for-service. Dr. Culpepper is a founder and CEO of an independent physician group in North Texas with 550 providers. He served in that role for 25 years, but as he says, his day job is being a board-certified family doctor. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Guy Culpepper, MD. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. You are a board-certified family doc. You practice medicine. What does your average day look like being a PCP in the middle of a pandemic? In the middle of a pandemic, it's desolate. The waiting room is empty and the phones are going crazy. In a typical day before the pandemic, I would see about 20 patients and receive about 100 phone calls. Now, after the pandemic has started, I see two patients and receive about 200 phone calls. How many of those phone calls are you getting paid for? Only a few meet the criteria for billing. Probably eight telehealth calls, maybe 10. The other 180 are calls that traditionally we've provided just as a service. So it's hard to change our patient's culture to tell them, hey, now I need to have you pay for that simple question. So we haven't done so. So, you know, people are calling up and there it's just some random question. Some of those are illness and we'll try to divert them to a, a more billable event. But the majority of people call and just say things like, hey, do my medicines make me at more risk for getting COVID? My pharmacy's changed or my grandmother is staying in town with me. Should I let her in the same room as me? All the questions of human experience wind up in a family practice telephone. And now you did mention that you're having eight or so telehealth, you know, actual remote visits. How likely is it that many 
independent PCPs are going to have the infrastructure to really take advantage of the parity telehealth reimbursement that's going on right now, where, you know, if you stick a 95 modifier on the ends of a visit code, you actually get paid exactly the same amount as you would if you had an in-person encounter for, you know, pretty many payers, including Medicare, I understand. I think that less than 5% of the physicians in the country have some type of platform to do telehealth. We're used to answering questions, but we're used to doing it through our nurses, absolutely poorly ill-equipped to do it as a billable offense. The opportunity to bill for a telehealth service is an alien experience for most doctors, and it takes weeks to kind of change the pattern. How do you take the phone call? You have to structure, do you call the patient right back? Do you talk to them at the time they call? And how do you document it in the chart? Should it be documented as a phone note or documented as an office visit? It takes weeks. The sad thing for us in primary care is, is by the time we start getting the hang of this, then we've already lost so much money that we're having to furlough some of the very staff that helped us to get here. So what I'm understanding you saying is that it's more than just the equipment that's an issue. It's like, A, first of all, what's the definition of telehealth? Like, for example, if you just have a phone call with someone synchronously or asynchronously, like you're both leaving each other messages, does that qualify? So, you know, the first issue is figuring out what the definition of telehealth is. But then the second is how do you alter your processes and sort of workflow to accommodate as much as the technology? That's exactly right. What do I tell my accounts receivable team? They will go online and research information that's relevant perhaps only to Medicare and come in and tell me authoritatively, this is how you do it. Then it turns out that, well, no, the governor has told us we can do it differently. And United wants it in one way, Aetna wants it in another way, and Blue Cross Blue Shield requires an altogether different code for submitting this care to them. So there's a learning process at the front office telephones, a learning process in AR, and then behind the scenes, the physician has to get comfortable with it. But yet, Dr. Culpepper, you've said that telehealth can change the model that caused doctors to leave independent practices and go into an employed model, you know, like this exodus uh, that is just rampant across the country where independent doctors are, have been shuttering their doors for for literally years. How big a game changer is it? And, And kind of like why, given what you've just said? It's a flashpoint game changer because what's happened, you recall earlier I mentioned that I may get on a regular day 100 telephone calls. These are all unpaid events. Our culture has been that we try to eke out a living with office visits, often turning some of those phone calls into what, in fairness, would be an unnecessary office visit where we are doing that because it's needed to pay for us to be here to take your phone calls. It's almost like the tail wagging the dog, the office visits pay for me to address the other hundred phone calls of the things that really may affect your life or that are more personal to your health. Now that we're introducing telehealth as a payable event, it changes the entire approach that we may be able to take in terms of preventing some of the unnecessary office visits. The office visits for, for so many things in total fairness were just because I needed the $80 to keep my doors open. And one of the reasons that doctors have not adopted telehealth sooner is first, there was a stigma against it. Our own medical association was fighting against it. So many doctors saw that, hey, wait a minute, this is a bad thing. There were old school doctors who said, there's no way that you can take care of these issues without looking someone in the eyes. There were cultural obstacles to overcome that we're realizing now that we're doing it, 
no, this appears to be the same high quality of health that I was able to deliver when you were sitting right here in front of me. The other big, big reason, as in most things, was financial. To get paid less for telehealth to do the same thing, why would I do it? If I'm going to sit in front of my computer and see you for a sinusitis and get paid $30 as opposed to get paid $80 by you coming in and seeing you personally, again, that's the way I support my practice. I need the $80 to keep my doors open. If we have a cultural change where I can be paid for a telehealth visit or paid in a more global sense to manage your care, then I can have both of us avoid some unnecessary visits unnecessary testing. It's a game changer. And it's a game changer in the sense that it enables virtual visits as opposed to offline visits. But are you also suggesting that this is a way that you can actually monetize the dozens of phone calls that you tend to get that are kind of the cost of doing business at this point? What is happening right now at this point of COVID is that it's like a perfect storm of multiple tragedies coming together. The telehealth is only one part of it. The COVID is part of it. What is happening is, you gotta understand in primary care, doctors are miserable. We're killing ourselves at the equivalent of about two medical school classes a year are committing suicide. 80% of our primary care doctors are saying, I don't want my children to go into this profession. And it isn't just over the decade. It's really been at a flashpoint for about the past two years with an unprecedented amount of prior authorizations and administrative heartaches and medication denials and switches and a sense of powerlessness that's happening in specifically primary care. One of the big burdens for us have been those hundred telephone calls a day. The system is telling us, no, you're supposed to be there to help my patients change when every time they change a pharmacy benefits manager, every time their drug changes, you're supposed to help them move their medicines from one place to another and we don't reimburse you anything. And so physicians are feeling burdened by that. Well, now when COVID hit, we're realizing two things. One, the system that has been burdening us is not there to help us at all. So we're finding out who our friends are. But furthermore, we're finding out, wait a minute, I can really effectively take care of people on the telephone. Maybe this is some of the way I should have been doing it all along. And third, I have a way of getting paid for maybe some of this horrible burden that I previously was just keeping up here at the office late at night to do at no revenue. The way I look at it is if, if your house is, is burning down and you like it, you remodel. But if your house is burning down and you hated it, which is where a lot of primary care doctors are, they want to change to a totally different house. I think we're going to build a totally different house now. And what is that totally different house going to look like, just like on the ground? So you just mentioned a typical example where I had been on medication A, and now all of a sudden my new formulary has medication B and they're, you know, equivalent. So I'm a patient, I call you up and I say, oh, you got to change my script. Can you call it into the pharmacy? How does this alter in the new house? In the new house, what uh, most of the primary care doctors that I'm talking to are now calling for is more in the range of a DPC model or a direct to employer. Let, we need to set aside that three to 5% of the money that's already fixed and set aside for primary care to pay us in some global fee so that it just takes into account and motivates the telehealth or the text health or all of the phone calls. And I think we're gonna find that it's gonna be incredibly cost-effective 
because it reduces some of the unnecessary office visits that lead to unnecessary testing. And the vision is that it would empower me as a primary care doctor to actually be more personal and more selective with you to find better options for your care when I'm not so focused on how to fit in $20, $80 office visits a day to pay my rent. So what you're suggesting, just let me rephrase just to make sure that I got this. DPC is direct primary care, which is a movement. You can look it up on the internet. Or you, you mentioned direct to employer. And the idea would be typically across the board, if you look at, if any employer or payer looks at what their spend is, the proportion of primary care to overall spend, it's like three to 5%. So the thought is like, why do we need all this administration? Just pay us, let's just cut to the chase. <laughs> just pay us the 3%, 4%, 5%, like, you know, upfront in a capitated way to care for, you know, patients in my panel. And I can save a whole lot of admin time. I'm actually getting paid for all these phone calls. I'm getting paid to take care of someone and everybody's happier. That is exactly the flashpoint that I'm talking about, Stacey. It's like a catharsis moment. It's a moment where you say, what I'm doing is not working, but I don't know how to change it. It's the system. Suddenly the system fractures, falls out from under us. And what we realize as physicians is that this particular pandemic is not the last one we're going to see. We don't even know if this one is going to be a cyclable event. We don't know the way that we're going to be able to open and close our offices in the future. So what we need to do, realizing this catharsis is we need to totally change the way that our country pays us, whether it be direct to employers, whether it be direct to patients, or whether it be the government themselves, to say, look, you're going to set aside this money for primary care. Everybody knows that no catastrophic event happens in primary care. Those happen in hospitals and elsewhere. So you know how much you're going to pay PCPs. Go ahead and just pay that to us and let us get on with our business. And we're going to rock your world in terms of saving costs. So this is what I don't understand. Straight me out here. Yep. This morning, as a data point, United Healthcare, United Health Group just came out with their Q1 earnings. And unsurprisingly, they were just fine. Thank you very much. They are still performing well for their shareholders. Interestingly, though, for Q2 and on, you know, Q2 is where this pandemic happened, quarter, the second quarter. They did not reduce their projections at all. You know, so businesses across the country, including primary care practices, are struggling right now in the face of this pandemic. United Healthcare, not so much. They're doing fine. What is the incentive for them? Because they're the ones that are ultimately going to have to agree to or decide that they're going to pay a 3 to 5% value-based contract as opposed to continuing with the old FFS model. What's the incentive for them? Not only what is the incentive for the plans, what is the incentive for the hospitals? And the quick, simple answer is there is absolutely no incentive for them. None. And let's face it. Those industries that are making really, really big money, they are going to be opposing anything that interferes with them making big money. Why would they want to rock the boat? They don't. They don't. But my opinion is that if only 30% of primary care physicians, the ones who still are independent, the ones who still are looking for a way to practice patient advocate medicine. I believe that if we continue to pull together in the market and start bringing employers savings, that it will be the tail that wags the dog, that the primary care doctors, by making our change, by us saying, well, I'm going to be transparent. If you guys choose not to, I'm going to be. I'm going to serve the patient. I'm going to work with employers 
that will work with me and we're going to save money. And when other people see how well we're doing, they're going to want to do this too. I think now's the time to send that message. I don't think we can force United to do anything. We can't even come close to it. You can't get enough doctors together and enough money and enough incentive to make them move the needle in any direction. Same way with the hospitals. The hospitals generated a massive amount of the gross national product in healthcare. The ones that are doing well have become multi-billion, billion-dollar corporations themselves, and they have no incentive in changing anything. And yet America is saying, please, please, you guys, get together and change this. Well, the ones who are going to change are the ones who need to change. We have very little hope of changing the big institutions, but we have a great hope of looking in the mirror and those of us who actually steer the healthcare system in primary care, we can change. So the way that I'm understanding this, it's, it's kind of a two-prong strategy. One prong would be go directly to employers. Yes. You know, in many cases, the ultimate purchaser of healthcare or, or maybe Medicare, but let's just set them aside for now. You know, you go directly to an employer and you say, hello, employer, here's the thing. And you show them all the facts and figures. And we can talk about this a little bit in a sec, but you show them all the facts and figures, which suggests that an independent PCP actually it's the foundation of any solid, cost-effective healthcare for employees that actually, you know, delivers good outcomes at the, the least cost. Like, it, it is always underpinned by exalted primary care. So, you know, you go to an employer, you, you show them the PowerPoint slides, and you say, I want to work with you directly, and, you know, you pay me 3 to 5%, and I guarantee you, you'll, we're worth our weight in gold. So, like, that's prong one, right? Yes. Okay. So then prong two is you go to an insurer... 60% of any given ASO, you know, like one of these health plans like Cigna, Aetna, United, Blue Cross, the book is basically, you know, 60% of their revenue comes typically, it's said, from self-insured employers where they're administrating benefits. So if you have enough employers who understand the value of exalting primary care and working with independent physicians, then you're saying that the tail wags the dog, you know, like then the employer, not necessarily physicians, but the employers are going to demand this model. Is that what you're thinking? I'm certain of it. The employers are desperate. You know how I mentioned primary care doctors are dying on the vine? So are our employers providing health benefits. They've seen that we've used this system of over-administrative, over-organized healthcare, and it's done nothing but go up and up no matter who tries to throw a stick at it. It's gotten bigger and bigger and more expensive, and it's reached a breaking point. I think that the employers, if they're given an opportunity to say, wait, primary care is essentially capped. Let's try something. We know how much we're spending on them. Let's go ahead and just give it to them, and let's partner with them in a way we haven't before. Where these independent doctors have been exiting to is, you know, now they're employed by a large health system, be it an ACO model, an IDN, or, you know, whatever letters you want to use there. What's the issue there? You know, like, does it matter to an employer if a physician is, you know, they're a family medicine doctor or a primary care doctor? Like, what does it matter? They both have the same training. Like, what does it matter if they're an independent model or they work for an ACO? Great. That's such a great, such a great point. What is the reason that a doctor would join an ACO with a hospital? One clear reason, the reimbursement rate immediately goes up 20 to 40, 50%. Medicare rates form a foundation or a floor 
And so as an independent doctor, I might get paid 115% of Medicare, but the moment I sign up to participate in a hospital group, my reimbursement rate goes up to 160, 180% in many cases. Why wouldn't a doctor do that? Well, you are then beholding to use that hospital's physicians. In other words, all of the other wonderful access points that I could send my patients to for care that might be even superior or more convenient and darn sure might be more cost effective are now eliminated from me because I'm joining a hospital ACO in order to raise and save my own income. Well, one of the things that employers and our healthcare system has to insist on is the same price for all primary care. I can't take a new graduate with no experience and just because they join a Baylor or a UT Southwestern, they get paid almost double what I get paid with 30 years experience. That's a broken system. Now, why would the employer care what group I'm in? Because those outrageous costs that that employer is paying are driven by the choices I make as a primary care, where I refer, who I utilize for my consultants, where I put your employees in the hospital, where I get imaging done. Well, if I'm bonused and have a base salary that's higher because I'm in a hospital ACO, then I am going to be raising your costs forever. So if we don't save the independent doctors, there's nothing to break this chain of abuse and there's nothing to break that kind of outrageous cost escalation. So effectively what you're saying is that if I'm an employed physician, then my boss you know, who I serve starts to drift from I do what's best for the patient to I do what's best for the company I work for. That's true. And now it's important point. We are blessed in America to have wonderful hospitals. So keep in mind, it's not that I'm going to take you as a patient and have you see a bad doctor. That's not it. It's just that I know two really good doctors and one charges a whole bunch more and he's in the hospital that I work with, that's the one I'm going to refer you to. These are still great doctors, no fault of their own that they're all pursuing the higher revenue. It's just that it's breaking America. So transparency and the ability to actually choose between maybe another good doctor who's at another facility who might be less expensive has not been available if you're beholden to the ACO that you're part of. And you mentioned imaging, you mentioned, you know, like physical therapy or whatever. Like if you get any of those services at a hospital, it is well documented that it's going to cost, let's just say, a whole lot more than if you go to an outpatient or you go to a, let's just say, an unaffiliated ambulatory center. Yeah, we all know this. So we have to say, why aren't we fixing this? We see what's broken. This is not some brilliant thing that I'm just telling you. America knows this. They just say, wait a minute, how do we fix it? And I'll tell you the way you fix it is, is the primary care doctor steers. If you tell primary care doctors, I'm going to give you the same base fee if you're independent or with, if you're with a group of other like-minded docs as I would have given you if you're at Baylor, UT Southwest, or THR group, then many, many of those doctors are going to say, good, I don't like being over there in that hospital group anyway. It limits my choices. They overpower me. They various, various experiences that they'd rather just step away from. Well, let's talk about that for a sec, because we've been talking a lot about the demand side. You know what I mean? Like the employer, what the downside is, if you're an ultimate purchaser of healthcare, like you're an employer or you're a patient with a high deductible health plan and costs are going up and up because 
effectively captive populations, if you want to, you know, put it in kind of stark terms, that if everybody in the supply chain has an incentive to ensure that the patient gets the highest priced care, then care will become highly priced. I mean, it's not, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to do that math, right? Exactly. But if I'm an independent, let's take a look at this from the supply side of of physicians. You had mentioned somebody who newly, with a newly minted MD, goes to one of these, you know, integrated delivery networks and gets paid twice what an independent doctor would get paid. Like, why wouldn't I do that? Why would family physicians gang up in order to prevent that from happening if there's so many that A, are doing it and B, getting paid well for it? There's two parts to that question. One is, why wouldn't I pursue a higher income? And the answer is, yeah, that's a great question. Why wouldn't I? Except that higher income doesn't always mean more happiness. It often means less sense of freedom. It might not be that you want that level of control over your referral choices. You also have less control over your staffing so that as you get tighter linked into an integrated delivery system, there's a tendency for your office manager to get relocated or your nurse might be needed in another area or you are needing to take a sabbatical for some personal life reason and yet you are locked into things that have affected that personal freedom. Sometimes it's not worth the extra income to some people. What I'm saying is, is that it's not worth the extra income to America. It's wrong and it's not transparent. It's not clear to America the amount that they are getting paid so much more to be a part of these systems. And those of us that have pulled back and stayed out of them have answers for America that no one else has. And part of it is there's a spiritual side to this. There's a personal side to this. There's a serving humanity side to this, a missionary part, if you will. Now, it's not to say this is altruistic. I want to have a fair salary. I knew going into this that I would get a fair salary. But there's a point where a little bit more money and a loss of freedom are no longer properly balanced. I think this flashpoint of COVID is another thing that doctors are finding. They they went to hospital facilities. They went to big in entrepreneurial groups thinking, oh, there's security here, and they're getting laid off by the hundreds. Now in the midst of this, they're finding that, wow, there wasn't security at the hospital. They're not providing masks. You know, my friends, I'm sorry to go down a tangent, but my friends that are getting COVID testing at the hospital, they can't get it. So they're coming to my practice, a family practice in the neighborhood to get COVID testing because their hospital won't do it for them on the front lines. And the results of the testing at the hospital are taking seven days, whereas I'm able to get my results in three days and two days because I'm not locked into one of those contracts that a hospital got locked into in their efforts to make more money. So there are so many real life things that would uh, lead one to want to stay independent. And you're talking about a lab contract, like you can source whatever lab you want and the fastest one might win in the middle of a pandemic, but a hospital, you know, agreed to send all their tests to X, you know, lab, regardless of how slow. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. So there's reasons you won't take that higher salary. The sad thing is, is that students are coming out of training, though, not knowing they have an option. They're being uh, basically brought into the cult of thinking, oh, I finished my training and I immediately go work in a big integrated delivery system. And they don't realize that 30, 40% of this market is still independent 
and that we are still the great hope for maybe lowering costs in America. So what does the timeline look like for you in the midst of this pandemic? You know, so maybe we look short term, medium term, long term. Our starting point is the flashpoint, as you said. It's interesting because we're talking about FFS reimbursement at the same time that we're talking about transitioning over to value-based care. You know, like you were kind of saying that the FFS parity reimbursement is a an avenue to get the three to five percent capitated, or at least that's what I understood. Could you just untangle mm-hmm. that a little bit? Yes. I think that largely what a practice like mine would do now is actually go to the patient and set up a direct patient care. But at the same time, what I want to do is to talk to small to medium-sized employers and have steerage of of them into our office. I'd like to see if maybe a forward-thinking insurance company would say, we know how much we're going to spend on your group. How about we prepay you 80% of it and uh, you achieve certain quality measures and then we'll give you the other 20%. I think there are a lot of creative solutions in that manner. And if none of it happens, if none of the systems or the employers have the wisdom, then what I'm going to do, like so many other high quality primary care doctors, is I'm going to step outside of the system. I'm going to go directly to my patients and create a very fair, low reimbursement because these patients realize they've got high deductibles anyway. What they're really getting is they're getting a $200 a year physical and everything else they're paying for with their high deductible. So they have no incentive to say, oh, let me go to another doctor because they're going to be paying for that other doctor with their insurance on a deductible plan anyway. So I'm going to go directly to my patients and start building it from within. There's already a lot of infrastructure, like the independent group that I've led for 25 years, the Jefferson Physician Group. We have primary, we have 200 primary care doctors out of our 500 providers scattered in a geographic area. I think there will be employers that would be interested in saying, hey, if we contract, let's say at $1,000 per member per year, $70 per month with these primary care doctors, we have them help us save all the rest of our healthcare costs. And we'll steer our employees to their offices that are widely geographically dispersed. Yeah, let's do that. Let's talk about that. So the idea there would be, and the reason why this is a a flashpoint is because now all of a sudden the independent, the 30% of PCPs out there who are independent start scratching their head and thinking, I got to do something. Like my doors are going to close because I can't afford to stay open, but I'm doing all this free care. Like now we're in survival of the fittest mode. And what the fittest are going to do is actually look around, you know, like go through the patient panel, figure out where, who employs these people, any of them that are self-insured, you're going to go over there (laughs) and um, try to get a value-based model. Stacey, no one else can do what we can do in effective primary care. No one, no one in this market. And yet, Baylor got $100 million already of the economic stimulus. I have not even received my PPP loan, but I'm not going anywhere. And I deliver a care that no one in this community can. I believe that this community will respond and say, hey, let us pay you. Actually, you're very, very inexpensive. That message is right now resonating across the country. I think that doctors that are locked into hospital systems that are going to look around and say, we don't like it here either. We want to come be part of your independent model. At least that's what they're calling me on the phone and saying. The point that you're also making is that if the employers don't step up, you're going to be like, 
I'm just going to go to a direct primary care model. I'm going to go talk to my patients individually. And basically, then you are not going to be available to that employer's employees anyway. So you just kind of took yourself off the playing board. That's exactly right. And if you think healthcare is expensive now, you wait until the high quality family physicians are not in it. Let's just say I, I work at a payer. And by, by payer at this juncture, I'm, I'm talking, let's just say a commercial carrier or I'm talking Medicare. What should I be doing right now? I hear you, you know, like they're, this individual has been with us so far and I'm thinking to myself, this is a pretty radical shift, but let's just say I agree that it needs to be done. Do you have any advice? What do I do if I'm an individual listening? If I'm a payer, I would look and say, hey, wait a minute, we need, we need Bent Tree family physicians. They take care of 30,000 people in our community. They are saving us seven, eight, 12 percent a year by cost-effective primary care. I need to get over there and take them the money that I already had budgeted for primary care. Let me write them that check. United Healthcare is sitting on what, $9 billion a month that they're holding. Their margins are amazing. If they wrote a check and said, Culpepper, we were already going to budget this $200,000 for you guys for the next month or two. How about we go ahead and give it to you right now and then we true up later? That would save us. It would change our opinion of them. It would help us to understand that they get it. They really do want to partner with us. The fact that we're there not in any way responding to our desperation and letting me furlough three-fourths of my own people and making me ineffective at trying to take care of their own lives that they cover. Well, then the fact they don't get that, then something is so broken that I don't want to be a part of it anymore. Yeah, and I just had a conversation with Dave Chase from Health Rosetta, who is basically that's their call to action as well to get commercial payers to do what Medicare was doing with the advance payments. If I'm Medicare, what's your message to me? I have a, an office that has an overhead. Medicare, you are paying hospitals something called a facilities fee. If I put that hospital's name on my letterhead, you immediately start paying me a facilities fee. Is that right? No. Pay me the same thing that you would pay a hospital and let me take good care of your people. Is there anything I neglected to ask you, Dr. Culpepper? Oh, there's a thousand things. I hope <laughs> we'll get a chance to talk again. Guy Culpepper, MD, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value Podcast today. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.